Why, thanks. You know, I don't get the applause one, a little bit once in a while, but it is good to see everybody here on this uh, day. Uh, would you take your Bibles out? Now, I challenge you to bring your Bibles every weekend for the next eight weeks, all right? Because we're going to start digging into it. And uh, turn to First Peter as we continue our study in First Peter. So I'd like, I want to hear the flipping of pages, which is always a good thing, all right? First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and following. But before we do that, as I always like to do, right, just take a pause and let's ask God to bless our time in the Word. Father, as always, as we open up your Word, we uh, approach it with uh, an eager anticipation Lord, though we may have read over some of these verses or we may have seen them somewhere, I pray that all of us would come expectantly, uh, wishing and praying that uh, you would give us a fresh understanding of what your word would have to say to us. So Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit as always would have all the room in the world to move and Lord, change us in the moment. And we give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today, you know, last week, uh, I didn't read the passage, trying to throw you off a little bit. Well, today I'm going to throw you off a little bit again because I'm going to read it, okay? So turn with me to 1 Peter verses 13 and following. We're going to end at verse 3 of chapter 2. Now, I'm going to read this in the ESV uh, translation, but... uh, Follow along whichever way you'd like. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, just sit there, uh, relax, and then listen to the Word of God being read to you. Let's read together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is is good. May God bless the reading of his word. As I said, we continue today 
on this journey through First Peter. And I just kind of, if you weren't here last week and maybe you forgot, I just want to give you a real quick snapshot of where we've come from. Peter is writing to the church in Northwest, Northwest Asia Minor, right? He's writing to a group of Christians, and he assumes that they have come to faith uh, and they are actually struggling, perhaps even uh, struggling with their faith through persecution and trial, which is why he reiterates in the first 12 verses the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And in such poetic style and such, with such beauty, he lays out the value of their faith and the value of their salvation. And remember last week, the three-word main point, he was telling them, don't give up. Continue on. Though it may not feel good at any certain point through trials, but don't forget that your faith is worth far more than the most, uh, uh, the most uh, precious thing to man, which is gold. And that perishes. And then he said, look, what you have, your forefathers were longing for as well as the angels. Then he comes to this part of his letter. Now, if you have a pencil, if you have a pen, you underline this word wherever you see it in the scriptures, right? And we know that he has something to say about what he just said because he says the word, therefore, right? Therefore, it's this word that connects. And look, as he continues on in this passage, I'm going to make an assumption again that you know this passage or, you've, or at least have heard of it. And I'm going to tell you the answer before the end of the sermon, right? You're going to get your money's worth once again. I'm going to give it to you now just in case you fall asleep later. Okay, so, but here's the question as he continues to write this letter is that he has just explained for them, look, live with an eternal perspective. The thing that gives you hope is the guarantee of salvation. May that drive the decisions and your actions, right? That's what he says. And for the rest of the letter, he then starts to parse out and he starts to describe what life, right, before that time should look like. How we should live. So he starts off this next section with saying, now, roll up your sleeves, preparing your minds for action. It's this really neat thing. This, this phrase actually was a, uh, this idea of someone in their tunic just pulling up their tunic and tying it around their waist or tucking in their pants so they can actually start working. It's that idea of like, get prepared. And here's his first point. He said, live holy lives. There you go. If you have to go, you've gotten the main point. But what I want to help us understand through this passage is, what does it mean to be holy. What does it actually mean to live holy lives? You know, that's a word that we kind of throw around in our culture, don't we? Holy cow, right? Um, we will call things, uh, uh, you know, very sacred things holy. You know, I had a friend who uh, was a, a student with me at seminary. And uh, she actually teaches at the seminary now. And she actually did a paper 
on the word holy. She actually did like a 25-page paper on the word holy. Can you imagine writing 25 pages worth of anything on one word? But I remember she came to me and said, Justin, can I just share with you something really interesting about this word? And I'm like, sure, what, what's going on? She's like, as I've studied this word, it, it's like this word pops up. And she, she went way back to when it first appears in any sort of records. And they said scholars didn't actually have a record of this word. It just appears. So when you're trying to define the etymology of a word, you're trying to see how it's used. And maybe, just maybe, they can get a sense of what it means. And the, and the only way the word holy was used in the very, very beginning was that it always was attached to Yahweh. It was attached to God. So they said, you know what, this word belongs to God. And to tell you the truth, that's the way they actually started translating the word, belonging to God. So when we get to this, uh, this phrase that you know, it uh, comes from Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. Isn't it interesting that we can actually understand it this way? Belong to God because it belongs to me. God is saying that. But what does that mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? And why is Peter saying this and bringing this up? I believe we learn uh, very uh, interesting things about the word holy in the way he uses it. Let's go back to the, the, the verses here. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded of clear conscience, he reiterates, set your hope, listen carefully, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here he goes, pointing again to the end game. Do you see? That's where your hope should be. This is a very important point that your hope should be set on that which is guaranteed and will come. Now here's a word for you to circle in your Bibles. As obedient children. Circle the word obedient. Because this word appears firstly in this letter in verse 2. You can circle it in verse 2. It appears here in verse 14. And it will appear again in verse 22. And when a word is uh, repeated, an important word is repeated, you know that it's going to have an important point. As obedient children, he says this. And remember, context is king, right? As we ask the question, what does holiness mean? Practically. He says this, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy. Most of us know the, uh, uh, the kind of the everyday definition of holy. What would you say it was? To be set apart, which is a good working definition of the word holy. But apart from what? Do you know what you're supposed to be a part 
apart, not a part, but apart from? Well, Peter tells us right here. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I want to pause here for a second and kind of give you a little bit of a theology lesson, or actually just a gospel lesson. You know, when, you, when we follow Christ, when we make a decision to follow Jesus, what do you leave behind? Now, interestingly enough, the reason why I ask that question is a lot of people, I believe, try to have best of both worlds. What do you leave behind when you follow Jesus? When Jesus called the sons of Zebedee and Simon Peter at at the side of the lake. He said, come and follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Guess what that meant? If you're gonna follow me, you're gonna have to leave something behind. And I believe Peter understands. Do not be conformed. Do not Day. Do not be a part of the way you used to be, the desires and the passions that you had from your old life. You know, scholars will tell us that holiness really does have this idea of being uh, separating from anything that is profane. Because when we talk about holiness, another term that we kind of use synonymously is godly, Right? If something is unholy, we actually even think of it as ungodly. So when you actually have the definition of holiness, and this is something you can actually write down on your sermon notes, holiness is to separate ourselves or uh, keep ourselves apart from anything that is profane, anything that may be ungodly, or something or anything that God may view as not right. Now, if we have that definition of holiness, it brings it down to earth, doesn't it? That when we say the word holy, we think that there's this magical... All of a sudden, you know, we deem something holy and we're just floating off the floor. Right? But for us, on this side of reality, holiness actually has an effect. Now, before I go into that, we have to talk about where holiness comes from. We all know where holiness comes from. Holiness is not something that we earn. Say this with me. Holiness is not something that we earn. All right. Some people may look at this uh, passage and say, Pastor, are you saying that we need to work at, uh, um, at getting God's favor? Are you saying that Peter is saying that there's this works-based gospel in these scriptures? I tell you no. You know why? Because of the context of who he's writing to. He's writing to people who have already come to know Jesus. And he's already spent the first 13, 14 verses expounding the beauty of how God has caused us to be born again into the living hope, right? 
that we had nothing to do with it. He is preaching the gospel. So can I hear an amen? amen? Good. Wow, we got a lot of Baptists in the room today. Thank you, Jesus. Right? So in the context of who he's writing to, he is, please don't use this passage as saying, you know what, I think pastor is saying that there's a works-based uh, gospel in there. There is not. But we do learn that holiness is conferred and it is deemed by the one who owns the term holy. And when does something go from profane to holy, especially when it comes to people? When we become his. Does that start to make sense? When we belong to him. Through the amazing work of Jesus Christ, through faith in him as he continues to pound that in and remind his readers that holiness is confer conferred and it is not earned. There's a phrase you want to write down in your sermon notes. There it is. Holiness is conferred. It is not earned. But there is this other side, don't we, that we kind of bump our head up against. He says, you be holy, for I am holy. Okay, get that sense. God is saying this to, to us. Be holy, because I'm holy. There is this expectation that holiness has an effect. Since we have been caused to be holy, there is now this effect from holiness, and that there is work to be done. Now let me, for some of you, this may be a brand new idea, that holiness, well, wait a minute, holiness is some magic dust that God throws upon us, and I thought we were good. It's not. As we have been given or deemed holy, now it needs to take effect, right? And it is not a passive effect. Can I tell you something? It is not a passive effect. We actually have a part to do with it. I am, hear me again. I'm going to say this again because I don't want to hear an email. I don't want to get an email saying, Pastor, are you saying that we can work for our salvation? He is not talking about salvation. He's talking about a life that is lived in the shadow of holiness, right? In the light of holiness. Well, why should we live a life of holiness? Uh, 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 what's the effect? There's this, uh, can I just uh, get all a little bit uh, uh, Greeky geeky on you for a second, right? I might as well, I'm going to put you through the pain because I had to endure it like for four years at, at seminary. There's this interesting thing, and um, a lot of scholars will point this out in their commentaries. The Greek syntax is very significant here in this passage. All right? The types of verbs, verbs that uh, Peter is using from the first 12 verses 
then into the, ver- uh, the verbs that he tends to use in the, in the following uh, verses here is so significant. When you read Paul, he tends to clump all the, uh, the like verbs together, right? And then he'll go on to saying all the, diff- uh, all the like verbs uh, together in, in big chunks. What Peter does here, even before he gets to the end of the letter, he starts to flip-flop, and it's very, very unique, and it's actually very, very important. The first 12 verses, most of the verbs that he uses in telling us, right, the very nature of the Christian faith was in the indicative tense, right? The indicative tense. Now, I'm not a person that loves uh, uh, grammar, right? But I had to endure through it. I'm going to put you through it, all right? So the indicative, um, the indicative mood is in general the mood of assertion or, now get this, the presentation of certainty. Does that make sense now? Remember we, he, all the first 12 verses, he's saying, look, that's coming. Your salvation is guaranteed, Set your hope on that which is certain to happen, and then you'll be able to live through the various trials. See, that's why he uses those types of verbs. But when he reaches um, this section, he flips the types of verbs that he uses. He actually starts to use the imperative of a verb. The imperative of verbs are commands. You know the imperative. Bridges out, don't cross the bridge. Your hair's on fire. Run. That's an imperative. All right? But interestingly enough, he actually uses the aorist tense. I don't expect you to know that. There, uh, in verb, uh, when you use verbs, there's two things that you have to uh, concern yourself with. Tense, past, present, or future. Right? That's tense. And um, what they would call um, aspect. Tense and aspect. Aspect is, is it... Uh, is it uh, completed? Was it a one-time event? Right? He uses the aorist imperative. It is not actually, when you see an aorist verb, it's usually something that's in the past. But in uh, classical Greek, in, in, in this biblical Greek, an aorist imperative does not actually point to something that's happened in the past but it does connote this idea that this imperative, that's a command that's given, is expected to be completed. For example, for example, if there is a present imperative, right? Um, it's saying, hey, can you go plow that field? The, the actual command to plow the field, there is this expectation that at one point, that field's gonna get plowed, but how much of it is not really a big concern. Just go plow. But when it's put into the aorist tense and says, go plow that field, the expectation is that that, plow, that field will get plowed and completed. Now, all of a sudden, we start to understand the commands that Peter writes in this section. Prepare your minds. A lot of, a lot of your translations will be, set your minds, right? Set. There's that aorist imperative. And he expects it to be done and complete. It's not a continuing thing. It's like, get it done. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded, right? 
and it continues and continues. And he says, be holy for God is holy. Do you see how it starts to change the feeling? Then he starts to say, this is why you should be holy. This is why you should start to live and start thinking about living your life as to reflect who you belong to. As to reflect who you belong to. Verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Who is he talking to? Is he talking to unbelievers here? Who's he talking to in this letter? He's talking to believers. He's saying, if you believe that the Father will judge each and every one of us, he will evaluate what we have done and did not do. Can I just pause here for a second? There's this interesting, uh, th I think this is a really important part of understanding our Christian faith. We had talked about this idea of, you know, this train ticket to glory thing. Remember that, right? That, sadly, some people say, like, I, look, I, I went up in that uh, uh, altar call and I said the prayer, I'm good. I'm set until the day. Peter here is saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Remember, your, your hope is set on what's coming when Jesus Christ is revealed but in the meantime, you need to work at reflecting who you belong to. Be holy because he's holy. And let me tell you why that's so important. Because if you believe that God is an impartial judge and he will judge, we will still stand in judgment as believers. Let that sink in for a second. We will still stand in judgment as believers, not for our sins, mind you, but we, he will evaluate what we have and have not done with our time here on this earth. I hope that makes you sober-minded because that's what Peter said. Get ready. Think clearly now, and I'm going to help you think clearly. You know why you should live holy lives? Because we're going to stand in judgment still before our holy God. Not for our sins, but the things that he's asked us to take responsibility for. What we have and have not done. Now, there is another sort of judgment, isn't there, for people that do not know. That what we, a lot of people would call unbelievers or the unregenerate, people that are unrepentant. The psalmist actually writes, there is no judgment for those people because their judgment has been set so they will not stand judgment. Their judgment is doom already. That's the second sort of judgment that we're, Remember when Pastor Rex said, look, if we're going to heaven, we're going to try to grab as many people as we can. And I believe there's also a third 
type of judgment. This is the type of judgment that always gives me the heebie-jeebies. And this is the judgment that I preached on a few years ago. The last part of the Beatitudes. When he talks about people on Judgment Day who will come to the Father and say, Lord, do we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say to them, I didn't know you. Yikes. People who thought they were regenerated and justified, and yet they didn't actually get the gospel. Three types of people that will be judged. He starts, conduct yourselves. Here's this aorist imperative. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the uh, time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed. Here he goes. He, he re reminds us, look. You should be a grateful people. You know how ingrates uh, annoy you, right? Uh, Remember how you uh, went out of your way to clean someone's house? You went out of your way to make them dinners, right? And as you walked up to the door and you gave them food, they said, thanks, and they shut the door right in your face. And you sense it's almost like they expect it. And you walk away, you're going, what ungrateful people. Be Grateful, remember to whom you belong and why you belong to him. Look, and he goes off, he digresses. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. And then he gives praise Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest the last times for your sake. For your sake. And now through him, we are believers and benefact. Uh, 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 we, uh, we, we receive the reward of what he has done He says, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Then he says, look, love one another. Does anyone really, do you sense the two kind of messages coming out here? Love God, love people. Look, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since since." You have been born again. Again, there's the reason. Why should we do these things, God? Because you have been saved. Because you have been born again and given a living hope. And then he say, says again, of imperishable seed. He keeps pointing back to the hope and to the truth of our salvation. In ver chapter 2, here comes the Errors imperatives. Put away all malice. Put away all deceit. 
and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Why? Does, does anyone know why? Because if we are to be holy, we must set apart from those things that are profane, those things that are not godly. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. So, what does a holy life look like? I tell you, holiness, we understand the cause because God is holy. Yes? Now the effect is the hard part. I tell you, that holiness is not a checklist. You can write that down too. Holiness is not a checklist. You could go throughout this passage and write down everything that's on it, every heiress imperative, like, okay, I'm going to work on my slander. I'm going to work on my malice. I'm going to work on my deceit. I'm going to work on my envy. I'm going to work on my jealousy. There you go. And God, now you're going to find me uh, righteous. Hopefully, I am holy. No. Holiness is conferred, and it's deemed upon you because not of what you've earned or can earn, but because of who God is. Holiness is now your responsibility to live it. Pastor, how is that even possible? How can, I even, how can I even be successful at all of this? You can't. Have a good night. Have a good day. You can't. If we viewed holiness as those checklist things that we just do one by one by one, I believe we've missed the point. But I believe holiness has, our part of holiness, has everything to do with that word that you circled that showed up three times. Obedience. Obedience. Pastor, I try to obey. Man, my fiance and I, we're... We're trying. We're in that room, but he's so good looking. Mm, she smells so good. And um, screwed up again. Pastor, I, I, I'm trying to obey. I know what's right and I know what's wrong. But I continue to just fight about the dumbest things with my spouse and I start calling him and calling her things that I shouldn't. Very, very hurtful in front of the kids. And I try to obey, but it's so hard. I understand that, yes. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? To try to be something that you may not be. Wait a minute, but maybe that's the key. Are you trying to be something that you're not? So instead of trying to fix your actions, you've heard me say this over and over and over again. Why not work on you? He doesn't say, hey, 
Work on your obedience. He just refers to us as children of obedience. And my question for us today is, what are we doing to become children of obedience? And I tell you, maybe if there's a secret to it, it's the secret of, come here, lean in. Submission. No one can make you submit or surrender except you. No one can make you surrender more and more of your life to God except you. I can't read your Bible for you. I can't tell your wife that you love her. I can't raise your kids in a godly way. I can't get on your knees for you. But the one thing that all of us have the wherewithal to do, listen carefully, is this. Is that just maybe we can surrender. Pastor, that sounds a lot easier than it than it sounds. You're right, it is. Because, look, why is that so hard for us to submit and surrender to God and give to him what is his, right? To give and live this life because he's purchased it at a very high cost. For some of us, it's simply this aspect of, I don't want to owe anybody anything. Or maybe for some of us in this room, the reason why we struggle about surrendering is, you know what? If I didn't have a hand in it, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to trust it. Or I tell you that perhaps this phrase that Paul, uh, Peter writes in the first verse of this passage is what we struggle with. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember last week I said, your paradigm defines your actions. I tell you, your hope will define your investments. If your hope is in the things of this world, you will not surrender any of it to anyone. If your hope is set on success and, and, and all the riches and recognition that the people of this world can give you, I don't believe it will come easy to you, to you for you to surrender those things to anyone. But until you and I realize that Jesus surrendered and submitted everything that was rightfully his. He had every right for everything that he had. And he surrendered them.
Because the father asked. Because he knew who he belonged to. He knew what name he bore. And until you and I realize that, I don't believe we will ever be able to surrender more. Because you know what? We're trying to hoard more for us. Right? Let's be honest. Jesus surrendered everything that you may have everything for the rest of eternity. I tell you, there's not a ton of like uh, strong messages throughout this. There's like, you know, I remember Haddon Robinson, my preaching professor, he says that there's like six or seven real themes in the scriptures. And I think Brendan Manning actually caught on to this when he wrote the books, The Signature of Jesus, and I love that book, and I mentioned it to, to you quite a few times. He says, the very signature that defined who Christ was on one level was submission. Because if he didn't embrace this idea of submission, you and I would not be here. Remember who you belong to. You and I for those of us who have a life in Jesus Christ, we have been bought at a very, very precious price. And I pray that our hope is set on the glory that will be revealed in Jesus Christ. What is your hope set on? For those of you that may be kind of on the fence, I encourage you to invest into that which will last way beyond anything else in this earth. Because Jesus gave up everything for you that you may have life. So what does it mean to be holy? Perhaps this definition will stick with you. Belong to God. Everything you do, every attitude you have, every action that you take, put it through that filter. Does this belong to him or does it belong to me? And I believe that will be the effect of holiness in our lives. It's not a magical thing. It is a true thing. Be holy. Belong to him. Because you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And Lord God, I, I pray that perhaps even in talking about holiness in this passage that most of us know, Perhaps we can walk away with one nugget of truth. That we would place our hope fully on the glory to be revealed in Jesus Christ. And that as we live here in the middle, that we would remember 
Everything that we have and everything that we do and everything that we are belongs to you. May we be the grateful people that you long for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.